0: Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. On this week's episode, we are sharing a recording of my recent interview on the Beta Kit podcast with Douglas Soltis, where we discuss why I decided to coin the term mannequin startups and how some startups in our ecosystem seem to appear healthy on the outside, but show no sign of life on the inside. Doug and I dig into a lot of the nitty-gritty on what responsibilities founders and investors have when allocating capital to startups, and how the recent fall of Renault Running and Clearco is a wake-up call for all players in the startup ecosystem. But before we jump into this week's recording, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Welcome back to the tank, John. Nice to see you again. It's been a week since we heard from you last, but what a week to start off with! Some of the biggest news in tech happening here, with your name front and center in it. With the Canadian tech company Myovision getting a transformative acquisition done with a backing of 260 million by the triple header Mavericks, PE, Telus, and EDC. Congratulations on the deal. Can you give us uh, some insight on how this came together and a little bit of the background with with, with the deal?
1: Thank you. So uh, we we are pleased. You know of our thesis and we're two key elements. I'll give you the financial elements. We are looking for businesses that are well past their customer market fit and they're scaling globally. Post acquisition, this is a company that will be over 200 million of revenue and quite profitable, uh, number one. But number two, it really is about trying to help construct a Canadian champion in an area of technology that's critically important for the future, which is smart cities. And Kurt is someone who I've known for well over 10 years, someone who i followed, someone who I spent a lot of time with during the whole sidewalk labs uh, debacle. And I knew what he was trying to do. The, The issue was whether they were at the right inflection point where we could really take the hand off and and pass the baton, we hope to be a spectacular opportunity. You know, not only for Mavericks, but but frankly and honestly for for Canada, because this is a technology that we better have a Canadian player in here
0: because this is highly sensitive type of technology. You know, what's impressive is one the mixture between you know Mavericks or traditional private equity firm. TELUS, obviously a corporate sort of strategic investor, and then EDC, Export Development Canada. So you've got sort of the mixture of everything here from the financial motivated people to the government motivated people to the IP motivated buyers. It's really an impressive mixture, but also maybe you can give our audience a bit of background on how this deal came about to buy the asset that they're buying that was actually put up in a, in a sale process. And obviously, MyoVision came in on top.
1: Yeah, so it, it was a an acquisition that the seller had made previously from a Canadian-based private equity player, TorQuest. So I don't know all of the details, but but it, it didn't quite fit into the acquirer's future plans, and it wasn't even clear what the strategic fit was in the first place. So as I understood it, it was a loose brick, and there was a, a process of which MyoVision was the leader in winning with only one problem they needed the money to pay for it and that's what that's where we all came in
0: it's amazing that i mean the deal was uh announced uh on monday and details are pretty specific in the golden mail i mean it said that MyoVision vision raised 150 million i am always shocked when you see these specifics here but for our audience hadn't seen it. 150 million from yourselves Telus and export development canada each investing 50 million us 125 million going to the company, 25 million to buy out early investors. Tell us that already led the last round of financing to MyoVision 2020, who also bought out earlier backers of McKinnon Bennett and Co. So there's been a lot of moving parts on the cap table here. Can you tell our audience, like, how you got comfortable with one being an acquisition in play, a financing round in play, a primary financing round, and then a secondary financing round? All those moving parts, it's always hard to get that recipe to sit just right. How did you make it all work?
1: And we had six weeks to do it because the bit because the use of proceeds was the acquisition. And then there was a short fuse and we ended up having the short fuse because our team led all the the diligence and all of the structuring. So our team, we have a pretty deep bench. We had half of our organization working on the, just the structuring of the opportunity. But yeah, I mean, all the pieces fit in nice, nicely. Number one, it is predominantly a primary transaction and it's way easier. And I think the, the days of 2019 to 2021 where you had a heartbeat and they gave you a, a crazy secondary, those days are over. And again... Where secondaries do make sense is where you're cleaning up the cap table. If you saw the cap table, this is a very clean, not that many investors cap table. And what happens is you don't have these party, uh, I don't like party rounds. So you have a few investors who have a significant reason to make sure that this thing here doesn't go sideways. We have a vested interest. And we have, you know, three investors that know each other. We have a pre-existing one being McRock, who uh, is a great investor. Whitney's going to be on the board. So when you have a group like that together, the the actual structuring of the transaction remarkably went uh, pretty quick.
0: Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I feel very uh, proud to see a Canadian deal all led by Canadian investors in a very sophisticated transaction, go so smoothly, it it gives a a lot of uh, investors hope that we can do such deals like this, like some of the American investors are doing.
1: Isn't it amazing that there's no capital left in Canada? (laughs) It is amazing. (laughs) You you know, know, this is the narrative that's out there. And You know, we have a few more deals coming down the pipe that will be of similar size. There's not a hundred of these, but we've been anxiously waiting on the sidelines for 18 months to identify these great Canadian champions. and, And they're around and the capital is there but for the right opportunities.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know who also is there? Uh, all the Bay Street bankers who emailed me today asking for an introduction to you, or <laughs> Curtis, for a pre-IPO uh, oh, yeah. roadshow meeting. And I said, yeah, good luck. You can talk to John himself.
1: By the way, one thing, and you you can quote me on this, there will not be an early out IPO when, unless this is a, you know, it's already significant, but, I want it very significant, well over a billion dollars of comfortable value before we would even consider that.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, maybe not an early IPO, but something that uh, is definitely falling a little bit flat on its face, D-Wave got a $50 million lifeline from PSP. Uh, as the stock is down ninety percent since going spacked, it's a, it's an interesting agreement that they entered into with PSP, one of their largest investors. I believe they've already invested over one hundred and twenty million US. One of their largest investments as a private uh, pension fund in an in early tech company. It's kind of crazy. People have been talking about Quantum for a while. You know, Quantum Well being an investor in Xanadu early on, but. For a company that had tried to take the earlier go-to-market route to try to generate revenue, commercial revenue, where a lot of the competition is trying to play the longer game here, it seems like they're still not even hitting the mark, even with the head start on some of the competitors. Can you explain to our audience you know, what's happening here and how the company has still been able to burn through so much cash?
1: Not to disparage... You know, any company, and, and by the way, I am not an expert on quantum. And frankly, anybody who says they're an expert on quantum run away because they're lying. But, you know, there's various generations of quantum and D-Wave belongs to the first and some would say the oldest generation of quantum. And many would argue that it's it's bypassed. And I, Now, it's a company that I've spent a lot of time looking at and I passed on every time. And and the, the, the biggest problem, I had two big problems with it number one is a commercialization strategy. I still don't understand. I've not seen them get past the product market fit, number one. Number two, when you look at quantum and try to really understand how pervasive quantum can be, and if you want them into every phone, et cetera, one of the biggest problems that I had was how you had to provide the 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 quantum material at almost zero degrees Kelvin so that the, the the qubits wouldn't be uh wouldn't be moving so they will stay in in the in the a stable state. The problem with that is how the heck do you commercialize something with that? And one of the things that I had said and when and I remember talking to Ken Nickerson and constantly asking him and saying, like, isn't there Uh, such thing as a quantum at room temperature. And one day when I was at Omer's, he said, threw it on my desk and he said, here it is. And I said, what's this? And he was at CDL and he saw Xanadu and he said, that's the bet. And that's why we piled in at that time. So that's the big advantage, whether it's Xanadu or not, but doing something at room temperature versus the complexity of keeping the stable material i thought was such a huge advantage it seemed to be quite sensible from a commercialization perspective
0: yeah it's unbelievable i mean i understand that there is uh, huge investments that need to be made uh, but when you see private dollars being spent by investors 350 million plus to only generate you know less than 10 million dollars of revenue which are probably a lot of just pilots, no real like commercial contracts as well. It makes it really hard to fathom how far off investors were in being super early on the D-wave curve of investing when a company like this is getting a lifeline. And and just so uh, invest or listeners understand, the reason why their uh, PSP, the largest investor, had to step in was because they had a line of credit with some you know private banking you know affiliate in the U.S who couldn't convert even to equity, you know, with a pick because the share price had dropped so low. So they had to be forced to raise outside of capital from it. Anyways, it sounds like a total shit show. Uh, I'm sad to see it.
1: Yeah, it is sad to see. And I guess, you know, once they tranche this debt out, the big question will be, will the debt just be greater than the value of the business? And the trend line is not optimistic at all.
0: Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, I don't know how much you know understanding you have of sort of the commercial real estate crisis happening, but it seems to feel like we're starting to see more and more of these private lenders entering into these sort of like redemption crises of requests coming in. And we just saw a Canadian one actually written up. I don't know if you saw this, where... One of their lenders had to actually basically put a pause on redemptions as well. We saw nine point partners also have to put their flagship. Are you uh, concerned at all? Any of these private lenders out there having a trickle effect across the the capital ecosystem here? Or do you think these are kind of one off large like real estate portfolios that people are just going to have to see be written down 25, maybe 50 percent?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on commercial real estate, but uh, and you saw WeWork, if I understand, actually defaulted on one of their uh, properties, which was was quite interesting to see, even the, the the corporate doing that. The day of reckoning hasn't occurred yet on commercial real estate. So let me speak to Toronto. There's no question that the amount of inventory has shot right up, and the and the soaking up of that inventory is going to take years to, to soak up, and it will assume that the economy will have to go, you know, positively higher in order to have new companies to, to, to take that. And there's a lot of subleases that are that are going on. You have to assume that red prices are not going to go up, and you have to assume that with the inflation, uh, you're having decreases in NOIs. You're not seeing the requisite write downs yet in the commercial real estate industry. So you really wonder what's going on here. And what I understand is a lot of the bigger players are not actually releasing out space if they have to materially decrease the rent costs, because the moment you do that, you're setting a lower bar and a comp. And so I think that they're holding out there as long as they can. And the moment of reckoning will happen. Whether they've, this is like Silicon Valley Bank, whether you realized or unrealized the lowering the mark, who the hell knows? I don't think it will have a contagion effect. What it will have is anybody who's investing in the whole prop tech, et cetera, space, particularly associate with commercial real estate, like your investment is not going to turn out very good at all. And it's not an area of focus for a lot of folks now.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of people think, you know, if you're a prop tech or a real estate technology company that services, you know, the larger commercial players, whatever excess capital they have to spend on software just got wiped out because they're just trying to deal with their own actual redemptions and markdowns in their portfolio, right?
1: Yeah. And that's specifically, you know, commercial real estate, right? So then you are and retail, of course, we already know that story. But industrial real estate, not so much. And residential real estate, if you're in a place like Toronto where immigration is just still going through the roof not so bad either. So I do think it depends which segment of the real estate market you're actually in.
0: Yeah. And before I let you go, John, I got to get your take on this. Elon, again, continues to be a bully, labeling the big, bad Canadian broadcasting corporation as state-sponsored media. (laughs) Oh, wow. I mean that really ruffled some feathers here. did he say state or did he go government? did he change it the government? no so so people interpreted it as state funded ah. media like the c c p but it really is just labeling as government funded media, which it clearly it is. is it's taxpayer it is funded clearly true yes, it's taxpayer funded and and now they're putting a pause on uh using Twitter, whatever that means so uh, I take it you don't have any problem with anyone labeling something truthful if it is truthful.
1: I have nothing doing that and and frankly, if the cbc where they're reacting like a petulant child like that where they can't accept the truth, let me ask the question to you is that is not their brand about the truth in journalism, reporting, and the moment that there is a call out, they they cry and kick and scream, give me a break. So I think that this is going to really backfire on them. There is a clear you know large number of people that are are very upset with the use of of the taxpayer dollars. People see some of the value, certainly in communities that are in remote communities, and they don't have any access to other media and you know the the Canadian content. But that argument only goes so far, and I think that the CBC is playing a very very dangerous game. They just should have ignored it, like most other people do, and just you know moved on in their merry way. But uh-oh.
0: Yeah, I mean, they should have just embraced it and said, yep, yeah, we have government funding. That's how we able to give everyone such great access to Canadian content.
1: What's your point,
0: Elon? That's all they have to say, but nope, this is going to be, a, you watch, it's going to be a self-inflicted wound and so they deserve it. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us in the tank today, John, and congrats again on the transformative MyoVision deal. Great, I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's recording of myself on the Beta Kit
2: Podcast with Douglas Soltis. At the end of last year, in our year-in-review, we explored 2022's boom-to-bust progression and made predictions for the new year. You might remember that we struggled to find positives on the horizon for Canadian tech. And that was without knowing that Silicon Valley Bank was going to go belly up. BetaKit has reported this year on LPs unable to honour capital calls, leaving Canadian VCs to pull out or renegotiate deals with Canadian startups. One of those startups being Montreal-based Rental Run, which recently filed for creditor protection after failing to raise four different rounds to keep the company alive. Most recently, the Globe and Mail has reported that Toronto-based Clearco is looking to raise twenty million USD at a two hundred million USD valuation, one tenth of what it was at its height. Beadik can confirm that we've heard the same numbers, by the way. Look, you know things are bad when pension-backed VCs. Like Omer's Ventures, Laura Lenz, are trying to encourage downtrodden founders by tweeting that her firm is still investing. So it's a timely conversation this week with Matt Cohen, managing partner of Ripple Ventures and host of the Tank Talks podcast about mannequin startups, which look healthy on the outside but show no sign of life on the inside. Podcast host versus podcast host, it's a unique conversation. We switch seats a lot. Me defending founders on Checked Out Investors, Matt defending investors from Cash Hungry Founders, and both of us looking at where the responsibility lies and where it is lacking. Hint, check the board of directors. And look, this isn't a conversation about Renault Run or Clearco or any other specific tech company that has recently been kicked in the teeth. For the last 15 years, money has been cheap and the line's gone up. With it rose the myth of the founder king and the founder-friendly VC. Things have changed. And many companies are in free fall as the line has come crashing down. So what comes next? Let's dig in. All right, Matt, some of the struggles a little bit in the stage for founders to identify healthy amounts of capital to kind of feel their vision, which is, I think, like, obviously been a topic of conversation and something that we've been covering on kit, usually at the the later stages but I want to talk about this thing because we we were connected on an email thread, this idea of mannequin startups. And we've talked about unicorn startups, centaurs, zombie startups. I don't think I'd ever heard the term mannequin startup before. So do you want to like for our audience dig in to this a little bit? And then maybe I think we're going to waterfall down and have an interesting conversation about where this goes in relation to the market right now.
0: Yeah. So I came up with the term mannequin startup over the last, I'd say, three to six months with like our internal team where you have on the surface a very good looking, a very superficial uh, startup that is well funded and covered well in the media. But when you start to actually look under the hood and see what there actually is from a fundamental business standpoint, you realize these things are not alive. In fact, they're just frozen in time from the last press release that they had sitting with all this beautiful facade of a mannequin, but there's really nothing mechanical inside of it. And we're starting to see these mannequin startups appear more and more where they've got a lot of cash, a lot of brand name investors backing them, but when they need to come to market for a rescue financing or some other type of capital event, there's nothing there and the businesses absolutely crumble and the investors walk away And the employees are let go and the founders are left holding, you know, what is essentially a a bag of cash for a business that is fundamentally not going to get back on the venture path to growth or eventually some successful exit. What we saw at the end of 2022 was a lot of these companies holding out, waiting for maybe, you know, the second half of 2023 to be a better time for them to fundraise because they had 12 to 18 months of runway. So they're like, well, if I just wait it out and my fundamentals start to get better and I can, you know, appear to be a good fundamentally strong business. Then maybe I'll raise that financing, and all will be well. Well, we just saw, you know, that you guys reported on Reno Run is a perfect example of a mannequin startup. It was reported to have raised over 150 million, doing over 10 million a month, and you know what would they say is recurring revenue. And not laying blame on anyone here, but as soon as they had to come back to market for a financing round. You saw that there was obviously not a fundamentally strong business there to support it, and everyone, including external and internal investors, walked away. So the mannequin couldn't move. It couldn't pivot. It couldn't do anything, and so it's just frozen. on the surface, you know, from all the funding rounds and all the the media coverage, they look good on surface, but underneath,
2: there's under hood, there's nothing there. That's helpful. I'd be, and it's interesting. You invokes you invoke the Renault run, which I think I, I was definitely interested in wanting to ask you about. But before I even go to that, I want to go back to something you said right off the top. Because I think this happens from Baytica's perspective as a publication that covers venture-backed tech startups often. And I think it's something our audience recognizes, but doesn't necessarily understand. And you're attributing it to something here that I want to maybe parse out the different strands of. This idea of like, hey, these companies that on paper look great, but you, you haven't heard from them in 12 to 18 months. I'm wondering if you could help us separate the companies that are in your parlance, mannequin startups because they're not moving. They have no motion. There's there's no good fundamentals there. And then also the other businesses that you don't hear from for 12 to 18 months because they're busy chipping away at their business and tech press in this country or in general is such that you don't really hear from businesses unless they're raising money or expanding or do it. Like we, we get this all the time. It's like beta key, you only cover these types of stories. How come you don't cover like this company's growth or these other and we're like, well... We do sometimes, it's overshadowed by the funding rounds, which usually happen every 12 to 18 months, but that's also the time in which those companies are most likely to come to us and speak. Starting there, let's talk about the difference between the companies that you haven't heard from in a while that are doing well and maybe keeping their heads down, and then the companies that you haven't heard from because the last thing that you heard about them was the best thing that you heard. Am I accurate in like, identifying this? Like, You obviously track what's going on. You, you read you know what's going on in the space. Am, am I touched on something here? Yeah, it's it's hard, right? Like you can't just label any
0: company that's raised, you know, 50 or 100 million as a mannequin startup because you haven't heard from them since their last funding round in 2020. But I mean, look at Jobber, right? Like a perfect Canadian success story that took a long time between their last funding rounds to get to their la- latest one, and all of a sudden they get this kind of later stage growth equity financing. I'm sure the fundamentals of that business are much better than what Rent-A-Run is, but Rent-A-Run gets written up as the company that couldn't make it work, and investors, you know, pulled the shoot on them twice and bailed on them. It's very hard to just paint a broad brush across any company at the later stage that has raised a lot of money and say they're a mannequin startup. What I will say though, is a company though that has jumped the gun on fundraising before you know that the company has real customer traction. Like let's say they skipped the A stage and they went right from C to like a 25 or $50 million series A slash B round. Well, it's really hard because customers just don't buy software that fast. You know, there are darlings in our industry that have like 10x revenue growth from like the the seed stage to the A stage or even 5x revenue growth. But those are true lightning in a bottle companies. And it's very hard to find those. And so for companies that raised money in 2020 or beginning of 2021 and got that 100x, 200x ARR multiple, they're in a tough position because either they figure it out and they backfill that valuation to get to that $100 million post-money valuation that they got on their Cedar Series A when they only had like 250K of ARR. But now if they get to like 2 million, which is still great, you know, it's like, you know, six, seven, eight X, whatever growth. It's amazing. But then they cap out at like two and a half million of ARR and their last round was at 100 million post and they raised 25 million to get there. That's technically a mannequin startup because it will never sell or be acquired for that.
2: Gotcha. Okay, now we're digging into kind of that second layer that I really wanted because, you know, I didn't want to scare any of our listeners. who are like, man, our company hasn't announced anything in like 12 months. Are we fucked? But then also noting that I think we in the last five years, specifically, we've all become so used to these rocket ship kind of growth stories that you forget that oftentimes for fundamental businesses, it might take an extended period to kind of like lay down the fundamentals to really accelerate growth. You just touched upon another component of this, which is maybe the companies that are getting out over their skis way too soon. You know, When we track early stage venture funding, we see a lot of, it's like the Series A fear. Companies will announce anything other than a Series A round. They'll announce their seed round, their seed two, seed three. They'll announce their pre-A, all because they're not willing to commit to a Series A round, which is supposed to be traditionally, historically, the round where you have found product market fit, and you're looking to scale and growth. Now it's much more of a an identification of like, now we're actually going to go achieve product market fit because we've raised, you know, four previously unpriced convertible rounds that we've just been stacking up as we've been figuring it out. You're talking about that other situation where the company would maybe found some early traction, found some early trends, and then went all in, which to the time period you were just talking about from say late 2020, All the way through to, let's say the first half of 2021 was a period where there was tons of companies really jumping in and raising massive rounds with which not often reported, but from what we're told, even more like crazy valuations like the dollar amounts weren't as important as the pricing mechanics of of those of those rounds. What do you think was contributing to that? Because we've had other investors come on. I believe like Damian Steele has come on and talked a lot about this because he was really concerned about the employees of the companies joining after the fundraising rounds who were like maybe committing to a trajectory they were saying couldn't really happen there. Anthony Mishantov, who you've had on your podcast, has come in and been like, no one's paying enough attention to the macroeconomic trends here. Other people that we talk to that don't come on the podcast, will just say Tiger Global quite a bit. What do you feel was contributing to these companies, maybe making this decision and and leading to this choice that now puts them in this like mannequin position that you're describing?
0: I mean, it's obvious, like it's the opposite of the prisoner's dilemma in Silicon Valley Bank, right? If the money's there, you take it and you worry about the returning of capital later. But now as the tide has gone out and the Fed has raised rates to unprecedented levels in, in the last recent decade, you know, we see who's wearing their trousers. And so everything's coming home to roost now. But anyone would have done the same thing that every founder did in 2020. I mean, the risk with companies that I always tell our founders is not with the founders at the early stage. It's all on investors. And that's the truth because the founders are getting paid a salary. They're getting to work on a project or an idea that they had that somebody else is spending money for them to work on. And if it doesn't work out, well, yes, the investors get wiped out and the founders obviously lose their equity, but they got a salary for the last few years, not maybe necessarily what they would have made at Bain or McKinsey, but they did get paid for their time. The investors did not. And so for them, they're like, I'll take as much money as I can to prove out this hypothesis and this idea. And if it doesn't work out, I'll come back again and try it in another couple of years. I mean, that's how some founders were really thinking about. Look at the YC model. I mean, it's crazy, but the last uh, recent numbers I heard from YC was that 80% of the companies never made it that were funded in the last like cycle. I'll give you another stat that your listeners probably aren't aware of, but I heard recently of a company, of a fund that has been around for almost 15 years, has seen over 4,000 companies uh, that they've invested in. And of the 4,000 companies that they invested in, that did not hit double-digit growth at least year over year, only 10% of them made it back on the venture path. Meaning that if you are not performing to where venture path expectations are supposed to be, meaning double, double, triple, whatever, you're not going to get back on the path. And so all these companies you're talking about doing like the the pre-seed into the seed, into the seed plus, into the seed plus plus, into the seed pair, into the seed elephant, whatever, those are those kind of companies. They are literally trying to get back onto the path but only 10% of them will. And so we just saw so much capital getting wedged into this early stage round, hoping that people would get back on the path because money was cheap and basically free. And some did, but a lot of them won't. And now we're seeing exactly that. And I've sold half a dozen companies. I've been in the boardrooms. I've signed off on you know, the purchase agreements and been a part of that negotiation with like really tough private equity buyers and strategic buyers it's crazy the difference that a founder has to go through to sell a company than it is to just fundraise for a company and sell like 10% of a business. It's apples and oranges. And I think that's what really is coming to bear for a lot of founders who thought like fundraising at the, you know, height of the market is the same as like actually selling 100% of a company or exiting a business.
2: All right, Matt, so you're putting me in this awkward position Where I feel like I have to defend founders, (laughs) which, you know, I guess as a founder myself, I can, I will carry the mantle for their silly behavior and religious decisions. I wanna maybe go back to just the first thing that you said, because not everyone took Tiger Global money. Not everyone necessarily took a valuation above their capacity to handle. I'm wondering just how first, like, how common is that? Obviously, the influx of, U.S. capital into the Canadian market was a bit of um, a comet in the sky because we're usually used to a repressed and I would say a, you know a smaller Canadian market in terms of capital. Everyone's in everyone's deals, but there's also like a kind of um, Canadian approach of like you know go find your lead and then we'll 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 follow on. There isn't that kind of aggressive deployment of capital, which I, I'm sure is reinforced by the fact that there's not nearly as much capital in this market as there is in the US. So it really was a the US cup spilling over and that 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 fluid has to fill a container and that container was Canada. But not every founder was looking to to chase those deals and valuations. How hard is it as a founder? You had noted before like the number of companies that you had exited yourself to be making a decision that you feel long term might be very, very risky for that short-term influx or opportunity. Are our founders seeing it on those timelines or lens, or are they just like, oh God, think of what the things we can do with this money or this rocket ship's never going down, baby. We're, we're executing exactly as we planned. Look, I mean, first off, I'm not
0: attacking any founder for taking Tiger Global Money. We're the first person to write a check into any company with or without anyone else in the syndicate and every deal we do. So we're the most founder aligned, most founder friendly. We essentially come in at the same valuation the founder's in at. And so we're always here to defend the founders. But what we're trying to say is there is a responsibility that comes along with raising more capital that nobody is cheering you on for reaching the top of Everest if you don't make it back down to base camp. So what we're saying is if you take that responsibility to get all the way to the top of the mountain, You have to get back down safely. And that's where 80% of everyone dies. And so on the Tiger Global thing, we never had any companies raise money from Tiger Global. They did try, you know, in terms of like having meetings or they did try to invest in some of our companies and our company said no. In fact, we have some portfolio companies who turned down higher valuations and more capital at the Series A and Series B stage to be able to find the right partner who had the perfect alignment with their mission, with their product, with their customer base, to not have to just take the highest money for the highest valuation. And we were very adamant about doing that because we're once you're invested, you go from sitting across the table to sitting on the same side of the table as the founder, is essentially what you should be, you know, until the shit hits the fan like a rental run and everyone starts to jig jog what you know kind of position they're sitting in at the table. But for the most part, because we don't invest post-Series A, you know, we're sitting on the same side as the founder. And so we're saying, yeah, this is not the best thing to just take the highest valuation. This is not the best thing to take the most amount of capital because once you take it, then, you know, the pref stack increases, the chances of you, you know, continuing on that growth path continues to uh, put more pressure on the founders. And so you have to figure that out early on in the journey. And some founders just want that massive war chest and that massive, you know, unicorn status. But at the end of the day, you know, we've had founders that are at the series B stage who economically, are gonna hopefully have the same outcome as someone who sold their company after a series A. You know, and if that that first company makes it to like IPO, like it could be the same outcome because of how much dilution and all the different capital structures and stuff in the business. So like if it's all about the numbers at the end of the day, you shouldn't just take the most amount of money because it's not gonna shake out that way at the end.
2: Yeah, that's a fair point. I think maybe this is a good lead into you were you were talking about this this idea that investors at these stages are taking all the risk. And that certain founders might see this as a, in some ways, a, a, a freebie or a flyer for a moonshot. I want to play a clip from your podcast that I saw on Twitter today that I think is is relevant here. So we'll play it now and we'll dig into it because there's a there's another component to this specifically with Rental Run. And I want to dig into it with you and, and maybe see what else you might be seeing in the market contributing to the, the current state of businesses that are in tough position.
0: VC funds, sometimes they're, you know, significant majority investors combined in a, in a business like this, but their job on the board of directors is to represent all of the shareholders of the business and not just the fund that they're sitting as a partner on. Uh, and that's often hard to sort of disconnect uh, when in these kind of situations happen. This is the break the glass kind of moment. And they actually did it. You would think someone would blink You'd have to do a recap, you'd have to sort of do this rescue, and things would just eventually climb back to hopefully a, a steady state, but they did not. And they ended up breaking the glass and just saying, rip the Band-Aid off, it's done.
2: It's really interesting because, and again, I guess we're just going to use run or run, unfortunately, as this this kind of proxy example, this platonic ideal of a really bad outcome for all involved. And I'm really interested in this because I think some of the circumstances that you're setting up here, conditionally for mannequin startups, are, are fundamentally true about Run Run. They took the Tiger Global Valuation. They would raised large amounts of capital. Uh, we had reported stories about them looking to expand pretty significantly across the U.S. And then as the macroeconomic headwinds made things more difficult, they had been looking to dial that back. The other component here, though, as we reported, is that... The company had tried to raise four different rounds and had various investors either pull out after committing or or put a bullet in the deal. We had also reported earlier in the year, it was a big story in January, got a lot of people talking, a lot of VCs in the DMs about uh, LP investors because of the same conditions, to be honest, unable to make capital calls and had been instructing their VC firms to either slow their investments, or maybe pull out of some deals. And it was causing harm to companies that had, you know, either had a term sheet signed, either had the kind of uh, promises of the next stage of funding to come. And in, in certain instances, actually, the money was taken out of the bank account and redeposited back, and the terms renegotiated. As we have noted in our story, Rental Run was one of those companies where they were in the position to refinance, I think, had a a broad swath of investors, not just Tiger Global, but in in the Canadian ecosystem. Like we could list off some of the names here, but everyone can read the story. We know who we're talking about here. And it seemed like, you know, four tries in, they couldn't get any, everyone to come together or some people were simply unwilling to continue to support the business. So you had noted this question of like, you really thought that in this instance, given the people involved, someone would blink, someone would eat it, someone would do what would be right, not only for, the shareholders here, but the employees, just the overall responsibility for the company. And it, it didn't happen. And I'm, I'm wondering how much of that contributes to these scenarios whereby this, this didn't seem like it was a company that had poor fundamentals. They were certainly overspending. And because of that, they needed to kind of restructure, refinance to continue on in the business. They had two different investors on their board recuse themselves from the board. I'm just wondering, you know, keeping in mind all the circumstances here Renner one's just one company, we're talking about investors taking all the risks, but you're also noting here that a different outcome should have happened for this company. And I'm wondering how you kind of reconcile those things, because I feel like there's a lack of leadership from that pool of investors who could, if they truly wanted to, seen this company through if they believed in it. And that just doesn't seem to be the case.
0: Totally. I mean, we saw the same thing, just so you know, with like Citizen App, with Sequoia resigning from the board and everyone getting recapped and everyone getting cut off at the knees. I wasn't in the boardroom just like you weren't. And we don't know how the conversations were being done. Uh, all the way through, I will say if anyone does submit, you know, an offer to invest and even like sign the documents but not wire the money, I mean that's bullshit. You don't do that. Your reputation is done forever, and you deserve to be called out for that. But we don't know exactly what happened in all the negotiations. You know, maybe the first offer that the insiders put forward on a uh, uncapped convertible note to try to rescue the company, the founder took that and went and shopped it, and then had a bunch of big name investors come and say, "Yeah, we'll top that up," and then walked away. Uh, And then they go back to the insiders and say, Hey, we'll take your deal. It's like, well, you just, you just leveraged us to do something else that was going to screw us because that clause had maybe a liquidation preference, but at a higher valuation, like you don't know the nuances. And that's the problem here in this specific example. And so when I say the existing investors, not the new investors, I'm talking internal existing investors, take all the risk when providing capital they're the ones who feel the the carnage right off the bat. The money is, if the company gets recapped, they lose all their equity and it's just done. You know, if the company is still alive and they're still able to continue operations, like maybe they have to let go of some people, which is obviously terrible, you know, but the founders still continue to perform if they so choose. But you have to also understand that like, I'm not just saying carte blanche investors can do whatever the hell they want when treating founders with these types of situations, but there is sort of this give and take when it comes to diplomacy and negotiating a financing, which is what you know Anthony Mushantaf and I talked about, which is like someone had to blink here. And the fact that both sides did not find a way to continue kind of shows you they probably didn't have, one, a strong business that would even have been able to make it to the next stage if they needed to get out of this financing to get another round of financing. And two, those investors were maybe not the right investors to see them through tough times and were only in it for the upside, you know, day one. And as soon as they fell off a a track, they were walking and going back to to their winners and their portfolio, which is not something we ever do. In fact, we've had companies that have had to shut down and we spent more time with them than we have with our successful companies just to find a soft landing, which didn't work out, but that's okay. The founder is now back and wants to do another startup with us because we cared about the reputation. So there's a lot of things at stake here. We weren't involved in the negotiations, but I am a little shocked when you hear there were offers and four of them did not get completed. Like who was really digging their heels in the ground here to blow this thing up?
2: You know, I'll just say there, like definitely wasn't in the boardroom. You know, we've reported what we've reported. I would say the reporting always continues. Who knows what we'll feel comfortable publishing one day, but I think you're right on there. Like on the face of it, no one expected this outcome. I want to come back to like that, that shared notion though, of like responsibility or best practices or reputation, because we're talking a lot about run on run. That's probably the most in terms of dollars invested in terms of investors involved, the most notable one we've had happen uh, this year. But we also, at the end of the year, we had good, good uh, shutdown. Now they were much earlier stage They shut down basically a year after uh, raising about $6.5 It seemed like they made the proactive decision to shut down the company. It's not something that they had to do, but they were looking at a fundraising environment very similar to the one that you described previously, and they were just like, we don't know if we're going to get to that point. We don't actually know if we're going to reach the summit and get back down, and what we're going to do is we're going to shut it down now and move on to other things, which I think is, as early as that decision might be coming, a very responsible one. But you talked about this idea of like reputation and and bad behavior, and I'm wondering, is it really true that that bad behavior gets called out and this ecosystem will respond in that way, given how small and tight-knit the venture ecosystem is, how few funds there are, how few LPs there are? And just to generalize this out, do you really feel in the last year or so... You've been seeing consistent rational behavior from Canadian VCs in terms of what's going on with their portfolio companies, or did the whole influx of US capital mess this up? Like, I'm just really wondering here because, again, for whatever happened, Renault Run did file for creditor protection with a list of investors in that company that I think any other Canadian company right now would take if they could, if they could raise money from those people. And, I, and I'm wondering if there, if there was bad behavior there, or if there's just, if just nobody was willing to blink, what kind of, uh, oh, here we go. Here's the pun. What kind of ripple effects that has for other VCs in the ecosystem like you, where you're looking around saying, man, you know, we're first check in, you know, at the valuation of the founders, basically. Are we keeping a list of, of funds further down the stream that we might be wary of right now because of how difficult we're seeing it for companies in the market. Like how much of this is the mannequin startups and how much of this is the other side of the coin, whether it's, I wouldn't say, I don't know, like we're going to need another analogy for the, the venture investors, but they're feeling some pressure as well. I'm just wondering when you're, advising your portfolio companies, when you're looking to make future investments, how much are you keeping a tab on what's upstream for you in terms of future rounds and and what you're guiding people towards? I mean,
0: first off, we are the first call for our founders when raising subsequent financing rounds. In fact, we put almost 100% of the subsequent financing rounds and introductions together for our portfolio companies. So we 100% keep a list and have a pretty broad network of U.S. and Canadian VCs that lead follow-on financing rounds that we would like our founders to work with. Obviously, it doesn't always shake out that way, but I can give you examples of you know companies in our portfolio that had a lead investor on the A. And then after a few quarters of missing a beat, you know, they kind of turned their shoulders and just went back to their winners and their portfolio. Of course, we remember that. Because when shit hits the fan and the company needs to get some support, they're calling us as the pre-seed lead when they should be calling the series A lead, but the series A lead is just not really around for them because they got so many other, you know, things to worry about that are gonna make them more money. And so absolutely we're always thinking about who we should find the right partner for. And luckily we have found a lot of great partners for us. But I want to uh, position a question back to you, Doug, because we always say like the the investors, the ones holding the cards here. Well, there's stories actually going around right now in the ecosystem of companies that raised a shitload of money during the last hype cycle with very little revenue to justify it, but they're sitting on boatloads of cash And the investors who led those series A rounds or series B rounds are saying, you know what, your business is not going to make it based on the revenue and the traction you have. So why don't you just give us the money back? What would you do in that situation if you were the founder, Doug?
2: Great question. And I I love that this has become almost like us starting to try to put some jigsaw puzzle pieces together of what's really going on in the ecosystem here. Because I think the situation you described is one we are directly familiar of with certain companies. Let's start from first principles here and then maybe walk down. If you're gonna to hold to that the investors are taking all the risks, then you have to be committed to the idea that once you've deployed that capital, that capital is gone and you're hoping it comes back one day in some return. If you love something, let it go. And it might return at a higher valuation later. I also think, you know, one of the things that we're what we're discussing here, whether it's in the instance of Renault Run or in some of the large US companies we've seen in the past couple of years that have had even more dramatic, n- not to compare them, but like we, we've seen with FTX and stuff like that, beyond all the reasons why they fell apart, there's there's always that one variable that they all check off, which is maybe not the best board governance, maybe not the best oversight, maybe not the what best- What if they control out. the board as the CEO? Well, this is this is, a, this is a great question, right? And this is what I'm leaning to. And, and I'm wondering if- some of the of of the two sides of these coins here of we're seeing where maybe founders are trying to push forward and they're not getting the support, or maybe the VCs are like, this isn't going to work. And the founders are just like, well, we're going to continue to sit on this money and pay ourselves salaries or give ourselves some dividends or something like that. Like, I'm wondering if we are reaching the end of the era of the Mark Zuckerberg, just back the founder. The founder is the visionary. And we're going to go back to a prior era of you have the initial founding team, which has a vision, which has an early product. And then at a certain point, they get replaced by responsible leadership that comes and helps scale businesses. We haven't seen a lot of that in the last 10 years. And it certainly hasn't been positioned as a win or the next stage of a company. It's usually seen as like a dramatic failing, right? When when founders have stepped back. But we have seen some Canadian founders in the last couple of years step away, whether it's Ryan Holmes at Hootsuite, Dax De Silva at Lightspeed. Uh, and that was a much more natural occurrence in prior tech generations.
0: Clerico on a couple occasions?
2: Yes. I, I think... <laughs> That one's a, under a little bit more duress. But it, it used to be that you'd have this founding team at a certain point become the chief innovation officer, or the CTO or something like that, still driving forward the part of the business that they cared about. And then when someone was responsible for actually driving the business forward. And I'm wondering if what we're describing here is a lot of different circumstances where there's a misalignment between the people on the board who's in control of the vision and their level of commitment to what happens. Like even... Even to the point of SVB, like, there's been some incredible reporting in the last couple of weeks where, like, it was presented to SVB leadership that the projections were looking very, very risky, and then they just changed the projections, <laughs> right? Like, there's a great Washington Post story out right now that, that, that we can link to for people, but, like, I'm sure everyone's consuming all that SVB stuff. So to, to your point, like, in, in terms of what would I do, I, I think it's it's a question of, the level of faith that I had in in the business, in the opportunity and continuing it forward, knowing that I've given up something to get this capital. And I would say in good faith, looking to use it to still deliver on that promise or deliver on an initial outcome. I think it gets more difficult at later stages. Early on, if this is an experiment that you're trying and it's not going to work, that you see a lot of people like returning the capital, trying again in good graces. I think, again, past that A stage, the B stage, if it's like, If you're sitting on large pools of capital and the ARR isn't looking so good, it's a very different consideration. But again, aren't these the type of hard conversations that the board is supposed to be having? But that's my point, Doug, is that's what I'm saying. If the media portrays the VCs
0: or the investors as the ones who control the entire situation from either succeeding or falling apart, when you have a founder who controls the board, and let's say they raise $60 million on a Series A on a couple million of revenue, and they've spent $10 million of it to pay themselves and their team, but they haven't really seen any success, and they still have $50 million in the bank. And all of a sudden, the investors are sitting there like, hey, we don't have actually board director rights. We're like a board observer or we're just a friend of the board, but we really think you're not going to be able to get to that valuation on the next round, you should probably return that money and play for the next at bat with a new startup instead of trying to hold it back. And therefore, the investors are still looked at as the negative person here when really it's the the founders controlling the board, controlling the vote, controlling the capital. And so you see how it comes at it from both sides when it comes to the capital, like kind of flowing back and forth between the stakeholders, the shareholders and the founders.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're really hitting up on something. I, I would say, one, I can't wait for us to stop recording so I can, or <laughs> see if you're willing <laughs> to name the company. And I'll say this now for anyone listening who was a reno-run investor, a reno-run employee, Eamon himself, the founder. You know, we're using this as a talking point for conversation about a really difficult time for a lot of Canadian startups and understanding what best practices are and maybe what, what the failing of that looks like. You know, Matt, I'll say there are, I think, very few companies in Canadian tech with that level of founder control. When I was using the Zuckerberg example, the only really like prominent Canadian tech company that has that level of like super control is Shopify. Right now. But that was
0: voted in the last two years or less.
2: Yes, but – Exerted through the will of the founding team and then supported by the people that were there. I, I would say there's a lot of other VCs. This is such an interesting role reversal, man. We're we're completely switching chairs here. I've got the VC being like, what happens, what happens when investors don't have board control? Most most VCs when you talk to that are giving best practice advice in the market are like, the founders have to pay attention to the terms of the deal, and you have to understand how VCs make their money on their investment. And you can't begrudge them for looking for or setting up conditions and terms for potential returns. Like if you take venture investment, there's a ticking clock on that because the fund has to return a certain amount to pay off their LP investors, right? Like you need to understand these fundamentals or you shouldn't take venture. I would also say if you're a portfolio of venture investors that invested in a company and fell Pray to the market conditions that lead that founder myth to be like, you know, we don't actually really have any significant board seats here. This is like, we only have an advisor role that we've allowed this founder to like stack the board, or we invested in a company where the founder stacked the board with his best friends, his brother, probably his dog as well, whoever can get on there. I would say that those professional investors should consider themselves just as responsible for those circumstances. But I'm wondering how often you're seeing that in this space and what you think the cause of it is, because I trace it back to Zuckerberg and Facebook, that really changing the myth of the founder, how that was perceived, the willingness of early to mid to later stage investors to look to replace the founder at some point with professional CEOs. And we're talking about predominantly, particularly in Canadian tech, a whole generation or two of investors who haven't dealt with anything other than that. And I'm wondering if this has been a really difficult learning experience on both sides of the coin as the line just suddenly stopped going up. I've had conversations with, by way of example, other early stage investors in this space, who I will not name because they were private conversations, but talking to them about the number of, say, not necessarily just ex-Shopify, but like exited founders who are trying to do some sort of super angel thing or start their own micro funds, who have been literally wiped out of numerous deals in the past year and a half because things got really bad really fast and they either didn't have as much liquidity as they thought or they didn't have the capital protect their investments in the later rounds as these recapitalizations happened, right? Like it was pay to play. They didn't have any more money to pay and they got wiped out. And that really sucks. But speaking to this other early stage investor who's been r- around for a while, I was like, that's, that's the business, man. This was a, like, you've got to be prepared for that. You've got to understand the timing to market and when it's a great time to be investing at this stage and when it's not and kind of hold to that. So I'm, you know, to take that back to you, I'm wondering if, if there are things that you're seeing either historically, behaviorally, maybe culturally in this ecosystem that you would attribute to the dynamic that we're, we're digging in here. Cause I, I think we've identified it. It's definitely at the board level, but there's a lot of causes contributing to that.
0: I mean, look, Doug, if anyone has ever invested in a Toronto TSX venture-listed you know, resource company, they've been rug-pulled, okay? <laughs> losing money is not the problem here. Everyone is going to lose money if they step up to bat and try to play in this early-stage venture or any type of startup entrepreneurial investment world. It's not losing money that we're talking about here. It's talking about the ways that people think that running a company that has multiple stakeholders— is their own personal piggy bank for them to do what they want with some high flyer hypothesis about changing the world. And fortunately, we actually haven't had a lot of that in Canada. One, because our investors are a little bit more risk averse. And when we do make investments, we do have a, a, a a pretty structured legal process for making those investments, hopefully.
2: I think our founders are like that too. I don't think, like, again, this is a the pretty B2B market, B2B SaaS right. market. You don't have a lot of um, WeWorks in the space trying to like actually start a cult.
0: <laughs> right. Everyone comes to a negotiation with, their entire wish list and you end up walking away with 10% of it that gets agreed to. Well, when you have a hundred times the size of a market of capital to deploy in the US, all of your wish list gets washed away and you get maybe one thing that you ask for on your term sheet because of the competition there. And so that's why in the US you have more of these situations, but also you have way bigger of an outcomes because if things do align and the stars do work out and the lightning in the bottle does come to fruition, the outcomes they're just that much bigger, so it's a it's a double edged sword in a way by putting too much structure in too early, which we don't do. But as the companies like for us when we have companies that are pre seed we actually get them to start hosting board meetings and properly structuring their quarterly reporting, their monthly reporting, not because there's a board, but because we want them to get used to the muscle memory of what it's like being held accountable. We've had companies make it to the series A stage going into that first series A meeting with a top tier US Valley-based firm. And that founding managing partner of that firm after the first board meeting say, wow, you're more prepared for this board meeting than some of my series C and series D founders in the US. And that was a huge pat on our back because we knew that putting them in that position early on to think about board responsibility, reporting cadence, all those types of things is the right way to succeed in this like convoluted market. And I just don't think investors put enough kind of pressure because there's so many other things trying to figure out product market fit, you know, go to market strategy, all that kind of stuff early on. But proper governance at the early stage is not something that should be avoided. It should be something that is constantly ingrained and mistakes are going to be made and people are going to forget to send out, you know, minutes before board meeting or properly get ESOPs approved. I mean, we've had some companies in all honesty, Doug, that didn't even get their like four nine A evaluation on a strike price for some of their options until like a year and a half in the business. They were literally just giving away penny stocks to some of their employees uh, when they'd already received, you know, pre-seed investment. And that's okay. You can make once that mistake, but not again. And so I just think as people start to kick the can down the road in a frothy market on governance, stuff like that, that's when shit hits the fan. And so I think we as investors should be doing more of that And we, because of my background in capital markets and finance, I'm very adamant about having those hygiene checks earlier, earlier on in the business so that they don't have these problems later on.
2: It's a great point, man, because I totally understand you being in that scenario and, and seeing it as a pat on your back that you're preparing your companies for what's happening down the road. I take that in the, from the opposite perspective of being horrified that that's a circumstance. And I'm wondering if like, you know, where do we go from here? Is this just a a period of reckoning where companies that either well-intentioned or otherwise mistime the market, aren't handling their business, either have conflicts at that board level for what, all the reasons that we've identified here. Is this the, the teachable moment that we're going to be experiencing here? Like, like. How many of these mannequin startups do you expect to find a responsible path out of this? Well, there's there's three
0: options, uh, as I spoke about with our team uh, the other week. The first option, when you, you realize that you're not going to get back on the venture path or going to find any type of financing at the multiples or valuation you want, is obviously for M&A or strategic acquisition, acquihire. Acquihires are just not happening anymore. One, because as you report every day, their talent pool is bigger and bigger, and AI is replacing a lot of you know, expensive roles and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, aqua hires are not getting, you know, what they used to, you know, used to see like in the heyday, like a million dollars per head for like an AI data scientist or something. I mean, not even close to that now. So not seeing aqua hires. We are seeing people trade paper, obviously for companies that have a good fundamental business and want some cash and the other company has cash, but they don't have a lot of good fundamentals. They're kind of equity swapping, and so that's something we're seeing. I mean, you guys just reported on it today. The crypto three amigos are are coming together here because they have to. So Well, you know, and, and
2: and I think as we reported in the Rent-A-Run story specifically, Dooley was a company that Rent-A-Run was looking to potentially acquire because they had a a, a large store of capital that Renault Run needed, right? Like so there's been some strategic in the crypto space specifically, but across the board here where companies are looking to you're seeing um, cash for equity stops.
0: You're seeing uh, SPACs even who are sitting on boatloads of cash, but uh, don't have fundamentally strong businesses. Looking at parting ways with some of that cash for equity in a good, strong private business, and then returning, you know, fifty or seventy percent of the cash to their SPAC shareholders. There's like all those kind of things happening, which is crazy. Then there's like the realization: okay, we're not going to find a home for this business. We need to decide on getting to profitability and extending runway, which is like firing 50 plus percent or something of the company, which a lot of people just can't stomach psychologically as founders. And then the other idea is just shutting it down and selling off the IP, uh, which is like the last resort that uh, nobody wants to consider. But that's really it. I mean, those are your options if you can't make it. And so I think the mannequin is just the starting point of when you come to the realization that you have to move or pivot one way or the other and when nothing moves, you know, you realize you're frozen in that position that you have been portrayed in in the media and by external investors, then you have to start considering options 2 and 3, which is fire everything, try to get to some level of profitability or extending runway so that you can come back to the market in a later date or just shut it down and sell off whatever part of the assets you can and return capital to investors. Yeah. Okay. That's well taken and 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 very depressing. It's not depressing, Doug. It's not. And I'll tell you why. It may feel depressing for everyone involved. This is the game everyone signed up for. For the founders who are starting building right now or have been building for the last six to 12 months, it's fucking awesome. Because one, they're not competing for crazy expensive talent. Two, they get to focus on building real businesses with real strong fundamentals and great margins. You know, the companies you spoke about, that are unfortunately the ones that are shutting down. You said good, good and uh, run a run, let's say. What are the two commonalities between those two businesses? They're real world businesses that have shitty margins. So if that's the connection between businesses, so if you're building a good margin business with not as much real world implications, so you're talking like supply chain, real world logistics, all those types of things, you can really navigate a storm quite well like a jet boat. And you can get onto a path that allows your business to not even have to raise a lot of capital. We have companies that are going towards profitability that won't even make it to the Series A stage because they are just good, strong, fundamental businesses that started off with good margins and the ability to be capital efficient from the very first check we wrote into the business. And that's exciting. And I think for founders who were having to compete for capital when they did need a little bit of it with the $150 million poor fundamentally businesses that were getting funded in the last cycle... That's not really around anymore. And so that's the positive side of this whole situation that I think we should be talking about as well.
2: Yeah, you're you're right. Like The forest has to burn for new growth to happen. And I don't think that that's something that Canadian tech has been particularly comfortable with because there's been such an emphasis on growing this ecosystem and getting to a level of recognition. I also think it's something that the Valley hasn't been... Very familiar with in the last ten years again, and in these tech cycles, there's there's just a generation of employees and workers who aren't used to layoffs, let alone companies going under. To your point, though, for the new companies that are very excited right now at this moment, what are you recommending to them to prevent them from being in the same situation as these manic conservatives we're talking about now a few years down the road? Because it's some of the stuff that we touched upon here. Could happen at a lot of these companies as they are riding the excitement? Great question.
0: So when we are investing now of our newest fund, when we sit down with these pre-seed founders, we tell them to not try and target certain types of like revenue expectations or hitting some sort of fabricated milestone just to look good on the surface, we want them to spend the first like three to six months really understanding the problem they're trying to solve and understanding how to build the right product to solve that problem as they start to scale. The traditional ways to build a a tech startup- right? Not trying to get over your skis too fast, not just trying to chase growth for the sake of chasing growth and put a bunch of salespeople on the force to try to like, you know, get sales up, but realizing your cocktail TV is like totally screwed up and your, your capital efficiency is just totally ass backwards. Like that's not the way to build good, fundamentally strong businesses anymore. So in fact, when we we see companies now that are pitching us with like a million dollars of revenue. We actually get a little scared of that because one, they've been around for like four or five years. So they've obviously plateaued and they've got like eight, $9 million sunk into this thing already before they even got there. And so we're really trying to get founders, especially at the stages where we invest to truly understand the problem they're trying to solve before they put any pen to paper on building a product and trying to build the most minimum viable tech solution to get customers to say yes to implementing that software and testing it out. Before they actually really have to scale a sales team, a product team, an engineering team. Like we only invest in like strong technical founders with like a good operating experience. So like they can do a lot of the stuff themselves. And then we want them to really consider what their capital objectives will be going forward and whether or not like taking that next $10 million check is going to accelerate them or if it's going to hinder them because they're going to put money on things that they just don't know will be actually a good ROI on the business.
2: The It Podcast is produced by It Incorporated. It's edited by Katie Lore, and its hosts are Rob Kennedy and me, Douglas Saltis. To learn more about how you can support this podcast, head to patreon.com slash